This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Michal Lemberger, the author of After Abel and Other Stories, which has won seemingly every award available for a Jewish book. Her nonfiction and journalism has appeared in Real Simple, Slate, Salon, Tablet, and many other publications. She has taught Hebrew Bible as literature at UCLA and the American Jewish University. And if I could suddenly become younger and take one class, it would certainly be that one. So I am especially delighted to have Michal with us today to discuss Genesis 19, 6 through 9. Michal, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. Well, I'm excited to discuss this passage, which no one has chosen before. So uh, please tell us what happens in Genesis 19, 6 and why it's so significant for you. We know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is a story in which God smites the cities of the plain and destroys them for the wickedness of the people in them. The way the story starts is that God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I'm about to smite the cities of the plain. But then we go into the city and we see an example of it. And what happens is Abraham's nephew, Lot, who lives in Sodom, is busy living his life. Some messengers of God come and he takes them in. He helps them out, gives them a meal, and the people of the city come to his door and they demand that the messengers be turned over. And this passage that I chose is the passage that follows that. And if you don't mind, I'll just read it since it's not that familiar to people. Yeah, please do. So Lot went out to them to the entrance, shut the door behind him and said, I beg you, my friends, do not commit such a wrong. Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you please. But do not do anything to these men since they have come under the shelter of my roof. I find that to be a truly horrifying passage. And essentially, the way that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah has been interpreted, the Christians we know have interpreted it as about, well, sodomy, which incidentally never occurs anywhere in the story. Jewish thinkers have interpreted it as a lesson about lack of generosity and hospitality. In other words, Lot welcomes these messengers and the people of the town come for them. They don't want them there. But Lot's reaction is to say, look, leave these men, these visitors alone. They're important. I'll give you my daughters. And when he says, you may do what you want to them, what he is saying, what the Bible is sanctioning there is, you may rape them to death. That is so horrifying. And as far as I know, there is one Jewish commentator who actually addresses that. I believe it's Ibn Ezra, which makes sense for Ibn Ezra. I might be wrong about that, but I believe it's Ibn Ezra. Rashi doesn't talk about it. The commentators that follow Rashi don't talk about it. They are really focused on the fact that the people of Sodom were not welcoming. So you asked me here because I wrote a book about women in the Bible. And the reason I chose this passage is because what it shows is what gets ignored when certain people are not given voices 
to comment on the Bible. In other words, women have, until the 20th century, really been kept out of the room. I like to call the, the rabbis of the Talmudic era boys who have a club with no girls allowed sign on the door. And that's really the way it had been for centuries. Women were not really allowed to be the, the authorities on these texts. And so lines like that just got ignored. There is another place in the Bible, in the book of Judges, where the same thing happens, where a man comes to visit another man. He brings what's called his concubine, which is essentially his wife, with him. The people of the town come and surround the house and demand access. The host says to the visitor, let's give them our women. I have a daughter, you have a wife, let's give them our women and they'll leave us alone. So the, the visitor gives his wife and she is actually raped to death. The host then, by the way, doesn't have to give his daughter. So it's a little bit of a, a bait and switch. In the follow-up to that, the man takes his, his wife, his concubine's body, cuts it into 12 pieces and sends it out to the tribes to say, this is who we've become. Look at this, don't look away. The passage in Genesis is not an isolated incident. But what's important there is that what it's pointing to is really the through line of violence against women in the Bible that doesn't get the attention it deserves because of who is actually looking at it and looking to take messages from it. On the other hand, can't we say that the Jewish people coalesce around being horrified at violence against women in the rape of Dina. This is the moment when the Jews, when we went from becoming a family to becoming a people, when we became united to oppose the horrific violence done by Shechem with the acquiescence of his father, Hamor, against their sister, who they acknowledged was, in this case, effectively their daughter, Dina. Well, I would push back on that. In fact, I just went to a Zoom bar mitzvah and the bar mitzvah boy spoke beautifully about this. When Dina is raped, Jacob says nothing. He doesn't react. No, and, and he's criticized all throughout the literature for that. He is. And the reaction of the brothers is to lie and enact violence of their own. So I would push back a little bit on that to say, from our perspective, getting an entire city to circumcise themselves in good faith, even if, and we all admit that the inciting incident there, the rape is horrific to begin with. One person committed that rape. The entire city says, okay, we'll circumcise ourselves. And then the brothers come in and slaughter everyone. So I'm not sure that that's the reaction we really want to take. Well, I think these are two separate issues. Now, Maimonides' interpretation of the brothers' reaction is that one of the seven Noahide laws is that there must be a judicial system because without a judicial system, you can't enforce any of the other six. And what Shechem did not have was judicial system because no one criticized the rapist, let alone penalized the rapist. So these brothers are given the choice. Do we rescue our daughter from being the kidnapped rape victim because no one else is doing it? Now, what should have happened is there should have been a judicial system which said no man is above the law and punished Shechem and maybe Hamor, but there was no such system. So the brothers did what they had to do to defend a woman who was being assaulted. And I think it's interesting if we look at the passage um, that you chose, 19.6, Lot seems to be replaying in a very bastardized way the Abraham story. In other words, he, what he learned from Abraham 
was be hospitable to guests. But Lot is like Fredo in The Godfather. He's like a <laughs> bumbling moron, which is interesting because I think great literature seems to need a Fredo-like character. You know, in the Bible, we have Lot and we have Reuben, who I'd also argue is, is like Fredo. There are a few. There, there are a number of, of characters like that. And I think you're right about that. We do need those foils. I just think it's important for us to note that the way that the Bible often makes those foils legible to us is by enacting some sort of violence, whether it's physical or otherwise, onto a woman or women around them. In other words, there really is a hierarchy in the biblical world. And the biblical world is interested in rich men. I mean, it's not really a book, narratively speaking, about the rest of us. And if you're going to focus on rich men as the center of your narrative, then there's really going to be a lot of people below the rich man. And the I don't want to say the easiest, but the most close at hand to be held up as both the symbols of how the rich man treats people badly and how the rich man then can recuperate himself by treating somebody well is through the women. So for example, let's take the story of Hannah, right? Hannah is Samuel's mother and she is the loved wife, but there's another wife, Penina, who is not loved, who is for all intents and purposes, a broodmare. She has lots and lots of kids, but her husband hates her. Well, the Rabbinic commentary goes out of its way to make sure that she is actually reviled. Instead of having pity for her or some sort of sense that maybe we should really look at her and feel something for her, she's living a life that is loveless. The commentary and the Bible itself really need her to be a foil for Hannah in every possible way. It happens with Ruth and Orpah too. Ruth and Orpah are going back to Israel with their mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi says to them, my daughters, go back to your mother's homes. I have nothing for you now that my sons are dead, your husbands are dead. And Orpah, who is actually a good daughter-in-law, listens to her mother-in-law and says, if this is what you want, then I will leave. But the rabbinic tradition needs her to be evil. And they go out of their way to make her into this sexual deviant. Oh, well, I, I come from the Karaite tradition and we just read the text. Well, except that you already mentioned Maimonides. Well, but Maimonides is a commentator on the text as distinguished from making up a story and saying the character also did this. So as a Karaite, we say it's not only it's fine, but it's what we have to do is what we're doing now is to comment and learn from and derive life lessons from the text, which is distinguished from making up stories that actually didn't happen and acting as though they occurred in the text. I mean, <laughs> I, I just, um, I'm laughing because of course that's, that's what I did. That's my book. Well, but you didn't say this is what actually happened in the text. No, my book is definitely fiction. Yes. To give an example of where I think this can go wrong is when people say that Abraham smashed the idols and went off on his own. But the text specifically says the opposite. Effectively, it says his father went, went halfway, went part of the way, and he died in Haran, making him the great Jewish parent. What do all of us Jewish parents want? We want our children to keep going further than we, than we could go. It was not a sharp break. It was the opposite. It was a continuation. That's really a lovely reading. I love that. Well, thank you. I think it gets harder when we look at some of these marginalized characters and we have to work harder to recuperate it. And we have to be, I think, intellectually honest and say fathers and sons are allowed their beautiful endings in a lot of 
senses. And fathers and daughters or mothers and daughters often aren't. It's why I really think the book of Ruth is a perfect book. Perfect. Because it is about marginalized characters who find strength in each other. It doesn't set female characters against one another, which generally speaking, as you know, that is the case. And they help each other and they live this under the radar life. And in that under the radar life, what we see is life as what I think it really was. It's this community of women who come together to get things done, right? Who names Ruth's baby at the end? It's the townswomen. They do it. Because actually, when you change the lens through which you're reading this material, you see a whole world that is invisible to those at the top of the hierarchy. And that's why the book of Ruth is so perfect. But this story where Lot offers his daughters to the mom, this is written from the perspective of the top of the hierarchy. Well, but he's universally criticized for this. I mean, he's thought to be one of the worst people in Genesis. Not for this act. Well, partially for this act. I mean, everyone says that he's, that this shows what a bumbling idiot he is and worse and that he observes Abraham being hospitable in Genesis 18, and he totally gets all the execution wrong and enacts it in a way that is just horrible. And uh, no one's ever named their kid Lot or has respected Lot. No one respects Lot, but I will push back on that. They do not say that he is wrong because of offering his daughters. That is not the reason that he is criticized. Interesting, because it seems clear from the text and in all the commentaries I've read that it was acknowledged to be an abominable act, abominable, indefensible. And then, of course, later we have Simeon and Levi who now it's a it's a rape. He offered it, but it didn't happen. But in Simeon and Levi, you see a, a real rape and they unite as brothers. And in fact, as the Jewish people around around the rescue of uh, of Dina, which they successfully do. I think in that story, Maimonides had a I think he was right. I mean, they were given the choice. This place does not have a judicial system. When you don't have a judicial system, everyone's responsible for everybody else. And uh, we're not going to let our sister be violated and be kidnapped. I wonder, though, and this is just me sort of talking off the top of my head. I wonder if the idea of Shrem coming and saying, well, I'll marry her, which we still see in the world, right? That when a man rapes a woman in certain places, if he agrees to marry her as horrifying an outcome as that is to us, everything goes away. I wonder if that is the judicial system at work there. And it's not a judicial system that is understandable to us because I'm happy to say we actually do take the rape seriously and not as a property dispute. But I really wonder if what we're reading there is the playing out of a judicial system in which a woman's sexuality is really seen as part of a dispute over property and he, she is raped brutally, as we see. He says, well, I'll marry her, Jacob, because he is acting within the confines of the judicial system as it exists, says, great, this is all going to be okay now. And the sons say, we don't like that deal. It's very interesting. If it was the judicial system of the Shechemites, the Jews don't accept it. So Simeon and Levi, they don't even dignify it. In fact, they work out what the only thing a powerless Jew can do is to use deceit to get everyone to circumcise for one reason alone, to rescue their violated sister. Now, Jacob doesn't seem to accept 
that judicial system because he does object, but his objections are all tactical. I mean, he says, look what you did. Now they're going to come get us. He doesn't say, look what you did. They made it right because they offered to marry her. He does not want to give Dina to Shechem at all. He just fears as a powerless Jew. He just fears like now they're going to come get us. And Simeon and Libby said, it's not about us. It's not about that. We'll deal with whatever comes. It's about our sister. Jacob was not a powerless Jew. Against Shechemite? Sure he was. He had a small family against the great empire of the day. First of all, Shechem wasn't the great empire of the day. It was a city-state. And second of all, he was a wealthy man with a lot of, let's call it, movable wealth. Cattle was movable wealth. He was actually in a pretty good position. Now, it doesn't change the fact that Shechem raped Dina. Simeon and Levi go and they get revenge. So the question, I think, from my perspective, as people of the 21st century, reading this timeless book, and I think you and I agree, the Bible is really the greatest book ever put out into the world. Absolutely. How do we, as 21st century people, reckon with the idea that justice should come at the end of the sword? I'm happy to say that we also agree that rape is a reason to enact justice. That is wonderful. That is not the case universally even now, and it certainly wasn't the case back then. So what is the proper method? And what, do, what should we take from that story where the slaughter of not just the guilty, but also the innocent, because while Shechem was pretty awful and his father was pretty awful, the truth is rulers have acted like that from time immemorial. You know, it's the, <laughs> it's the Mel Brooks line. It's good to be the king. And they take what they want. That's the Esther story. It's all over the Bible. It's in, in history. It's Henry VIII. It's, it's all over the place. It's good to be the king. But everyone is punished for the king's son's act. And how are we supposed to reckon with that kind of totalizing, merciless justice? And I don't know that, that I have an answer to that. I know I'm very troubled by it. As troubled as I am by the rape of Dina, I am equally troubled by the response of her brothers because it wraps everybody up into the action of the leader, which again points to the hierarchies. If the leader does something, that stands in for the entire people and therefore the entire people has to be decimated. They're not a lake. But they have no justice system. Unless the justice system was perverse bastardization of one which said that you can rape somebody and then as long as you're offered a marrier, you're okay, which is not a justice system. That's an injustice system. Agreed. But they have no justice system. And therefore, Maimonides said everyone is complicit in this act because no one objected. There wasn't a single person in the story who said, this is wrong. I will not stand for it. What you did is horrible. You should be punished and return Dina to her family. And the brothers said, there was no choice. Either they used the sword or Dina stayed raped and kidnapped. Those are the only two choices. Now, a justice system would have afforded a third choice, which is they would have punished. And it wasn't really revenge or vengeance against Shechem. It was really a matter of how do we rescue Dina? But again, are you going to say, and this is a question for me as much as for you, I'm pointing these out. Should we say that the person who gathers the water in the city of Shechem the person who is mopping the floors, the man who cleans up, excuse my language, the shit, that that person was in a position to object. He wasn't. And I'm not even talking about the women. Of course, the women had no voice at all. 
they could have objected till the cows came home and it wouldn't have mattered. But even the men couldn't have objected, but they were all killed. And again, I agree with you in principle. I just think we have to think about what should our response be to this beyond to say, well, they had no choice because of course there are always choices. And it is troubling to me to see a story in which rich men are playing out their issues and everyone else is suffering. But their issue was rescuing their sister. Okay, I get that. And I agree. They needed to rescue their sister. They weren't trying to to have conquest over Shem. They actually, they wanted nothing to do with it, really. They wanted to rescue Dina, who was raped and kidnapped. Well, I have to say, I did not include the Dina story in my book on purpose. And well, the reason I didn't is because the Red Tent covered her story. And that book was such a juggernaut that I didn't want to step on those toes. But I think I would have seen other things at play here had I gone into this, because my perspective is inherently political. That is how I really look at these stories, that it's about who has power and who doesn't, which is how you see it. I mean, that's where we agree on that because we're both talking about power. And if you look at the biblical text as a narrative of competing claims for power, which is essentially how I read it, you really see the ways in which actions are enacted on two levels. There's the level on which people say things are enacted, and then there's the real reason they want to do it. So for example, we can look at politics today, and it's the same thing where the government says, we're going to do this action overseas. Let's even take it away from the United States because we're going to protect democracy or we're going to come to the aid of our friends or whatever it is. And then you look a little closer and there's maybe something else going on. I'm not pointing any fingers at any individual actions, by the way. I'm using that purely in the most broad sense. Well, I think we can look at the Bible that way too. And I actually think that if we do that, it enriches our understanding of it because it opens it up to more ways of looking at it. I think we really do a disservice to ourselves if we want to say, which a lot of people do, that the biblical text only has positive lessons to teach us. I think one of the greatest things that the Jewish tradition gives to us is the notion that our heroes are not perfect. It's true for every one of them. Absolutely. Every single one. And I think that's true for the book in which they reside, that the Bible itself does not only present us with these stories of greatness, it in itself has a lot of nuance, and that we really, we steal from ourselves if we want to say, I'm going to find something positive in that. Really, here's the negative. And now, what lesson can we take from that and turn it into a positive? So if we look at the story of Lot and his daughters and say, he offered his daughters to be raped to death. That is awful. No matter who he is, even if he was a great man, He did something abhorrent. Well, what lesson do we take from that? If the lesson is he should have been more welcoming or he enacted Abraham's hospitality in the wrong way, well, we're missing out on something because what we're missing out on is this attitude toward women goes unexamined. It is not the issue of the text to say, really, the problem here is the attitude toward women. 
That's really the sin here. The sin here is that a father was willing in the first place to offer his daughters. And by the way, if you look at the very end of the story, what happens? The daughters get him drunk and commit incest with him and give birth to the later, the great enemies of the people of Israel. And so the daughters themselves in the text are then turned into sexual perverts. Instead of being seen as victims, we can look at that and we can say, wow, this is not how we should be reading this. There is really another way. And the other way is to say, if we switch the perspective and we look at this from below instead of from above, we really see that women and girls, daughters were property and had no options. And maybe we can create a different world. Well, that was certainly Lot's greatest sin. Absolutely. I mean, it's his greatest sin. It just stands out in the text as something so completely absurd and just shows what a complete moron he is. But if we go back a little bit towards Lot's aunt, I suppose, God, Sarah, when Sarah does something, and your point is so profound about how all biblical characters have great flaws, which makes it very difficult for a Jewish parent to name our children. I think that's when we all realize just how flawed each biblical character is, because when you think I'm going to name him or her this or that, then you, all the flaws come to life. And then you try to go to another name, then you realize you're going to have that problem with absolutely everybody. And then you realize how rich and complex the text is. But uh, God does say to Abraham, whatever Sarah tells you to do, do when he banishes Hagar. But another interesting thing is whenever a woman is not named in the text, there's a disaster. So we don't know the name of Noah's wife. So he ends the ark story as a drunken disaster. He's completely unable to rebuild anything. He accomplishes nothing. He takes the opportunity to reconstruct the world and use it to get drunk because he didn't give his wife enough dignity to even give her a name or a conversation. Lot's wife has no name. It's whenever men don't respect women, and we see that by not having a name, there's always a catastrophe. When it's the women who are named, it's the Rachels, the Rebecca's, it's the Sarah's who are our matriarchs in every sense. I love that. I think that's wonderful. I do think it's partial though, because after all, Leah is named, Penina is named, Hagar is named, and the stories in which they are situated are ones in which women are pitted against one another for the benefit of the man. It's all always all about, well, we want this man's love or this man's esteem. So I love that insight about a nameless woman. But I would say even when the women are named, there are still significant issues in the stories. And again, I think it has to do with where do we put our attention? If you want to think of it as a movie camera, is it looking down on the story from above or is it looking up on the story from below? And when we look at the story from below, from the perspective of the shit diggers, we see different things. And the truth is storytelling in the ancient world in general was not interested in looking from below because it was all about transferring the power of the God, whichever God it was, you know, Marduk or whoever, to the king. That was the way storytelling worked. And it's just, we don't really do that anymore. We look at it from above and from below. When you change the angle at which you look at something, I'm going to go back to that kind of language, different things get revealed. There's this fascinating passage in the Haggadah, and I have a book coming out in the Haggadah in March called The Telling How Judaism's Essential Book, that being the Haggadah, reveals the meaning of life. And it says in the Haggadah, of course, that uh, Laban is worse than Pharaoh. So one asks, well, why is Laban worse than Pharaoh? Pharaoh's the first eliminationist anti-Semite who wants to kill all the Jews. And Laban is a really bad guy, but after all, he wants to keep his son-in-law with him. 
I think it that statement from the rabbis who wrote the Haggadah, not in the Torah, that says that Laban is worse than Pharaoh leads us to ask, why would someone conclude that? And I think one of the answers is that it was Laban who turned his daughters against each other. Jacob only wanted to marry Rachel. It was Laban, the man, of course, the greedy man who cared for nothing but wealth. Laban turned his daughters against Jacob, leading to envy that lasted through the generations onto the slavery in Egypt. And we've concluded that that act of turning sister against sister makes him worse than Pharaoh. That's a lovely reading. Again, I would say we could possibly look at it another way. Like, why is he the worst? Yeah, well, not because he turned sister against sister, but because he was a trickster and Jacob was a trickster. I love the trickster figure. If you look in any mythology in the world, there are trickster figures. And Jacob is the great trickster of the Jewish tradition. Now, the thing about the trickster is that the trickster actually is often female. Was Rebecca the trickster or was Jacob the trickster? Jacob is the great trickster. It's not that Rebecca didn't use elements of the, of the trickster toolbox. She did. But Jacob is the great trickster. And the trickster is often the figure that has no power. And so the way he gets ahead is by tricking people. And what Laban does is he tricks the trickster. And I think that's fascinating. But when you trick the trickster, it really undoes the whole order of things. And the Bible is very concerned with order, very concerned with order, always, right from the beginning, right? We get in the Genesis creation story, it's laid out by the day. That's a cosmology that wants order. And what Laban does is he upends the order by tricking the trickster, which I think is fascinating. And in that case, he tricks the trickster by using his daughters. Very interesting interpretation. He certainly does. That's absolutely right. If you want to go back to the Dina story, what's interesting then, I think, if we're going to play out this trickster storyline, is that once Jacob is no longer the underdog, which he is not, once he's you know powerful, he has all these cattle and the 12 sons, and he's, a, he's an important guy, then he's not as effective. It's when he's tricking people that he's actually quite an effective character. But now that he's the Potter Familius sitting in his tent, something bad happens, he just sits back. He can't act as much anymore. He's not able to really rise to the occasion. And he's, he is criticized, not entirely universally, but almost for, for not acting. And I think one of the most interesting interpretations is a modern psychological interpretation, which said that he suffered from secondary trauma. In other words, just hearing that his daughter was raped made him suffer from secondary trauma. And, and trauma like fear, fear immobilizes people. It's one interpretation, a modern interpretation, but his inaction is uh, one of his great flaws. Inaction, particularly in that moment. Definitely one of his great flaws. I'm made a little uncomfortable by that, that reading of secondary trauma based on, on her rape. I, I really think that, that it makes me feel icky to say that when a woman gets raped, a man suffers. The interpretation was, well, he may have suffered because he didn't protect her. Who knows? But the question is, why doesn't he act in the moment when he realizes his daughter was raped? And one of the great things about the Bible, as you said, is we're still trying to figure it out. We're still asking these questions. And, and it's, it's so interesting how modern psychology could be an answer to an ancient question that maybe it's secondary trauma, maybe it's not. But it's certainly the question still exists. Why is he immobilized? Why does he say or do nothing? Why does he become a tactical man of no courage when his daughter's raped and his two sons do the opposite? So I say if you go back to the text, if we just looked at the text itself, I think it's because he accepts it. I think he is like 
fathers in parts of the world today okay with it. Not okay with it in that he thinks it's necessarily a good thing to have happened, but he's like, look, this happened. Now, how do we move forward while maintaining our position in the, in the society? And she's been defiled. That hurts the honor of our family. If Shechem marries her, our honor is restored. I really do think that that's what the very basic, the word Peshat in Torah study, that's the Peshat of the text. Very interesting. It's okay to go beyond the Peshat, of course. As a Karaite, we like Peshat. You know, all of Jewish exegesis is going beyond Peshat, but that I think is the Peshat. The Peshat is, this was a society very much like ones we see around the world today that are tribal and based in ideas of what I would call misplaced honor. And that sense of honor is really born by women's bodies. And we see it play out in the Bible quite a lot. I think your interpretation is brilliant. So you're, so you're saying that Jacob, he wasn't happy about it, but he accepted it. And it was his sons who went further than him morally and said, it's not acceptable. Yes. It's not a tactical question. This is our sister who's been raped. This is not nothing tactical about this. Well, again, I think you could look at it another way also and say they went further and they weren't thinking this is our sister and we have to save her. They were thinking the honor of our family has been so irreparably damaged that we have to take the ultimate vengeance. Again, the text allows both of those readings. Sure, and others, yes. But what we never get in that text, and the reason I keep pushing back a little bit, is we never actually get Dina's perspective. She never says a word. Not once. She is absolutely silenced. She's marginalized. She has no agency, either in her rape or in the story itself, right? When we look at the book of Ruth, that is the story told from the perspective of Ruth and Naomi. Yes, it's a third person narrator, of course, but the camera is following on their shoulders. Dina gets no agency. She has no story here. She is acted upon only. She is a reason for others to act. And I think once we take that into account, we can't discount the idea that actually none of this was really about her. You're so right. And more proof of how right you are is that Previously, when Jacob sent his family to meet Esau, it said he sent 11 children. He didn't even send her. She wasn't even mentioned in the 12. Well, first of all, he had 12 sons, but... No, but I think he said, I think it says 11 sons, but it excludes her. It specifically excludes her from the story. Right. I'm not arguing with that. I'm just saying that the 12 would be his sons. So the only reason she is mentioned is because she gets right. In other words, he may have had 30 other daughters. It's entirely possible. He had, you know, two wives, two concubines, what we would call four wives, they kept pushing out babies. It's entirely possible that there were more daughters. It's just the daughters didn't matter. And so the only ones that get mentioned are the sons because those are the ones that carry on the legacy. And it's incredibly important to understand that at that point in the Bible, what matters is carrying on the family name. Why do we have so many begats? Why is everybody called the son of? It's because there's no sense of an afterlife at that point in the Bible. None. There's no heaven. There's certainly no hell. There's nothing about the person living on. The way the person lives on is through his sons. And the women are the vessels for that, if you look at it this way. Well, what a fascinating conversation. I really wish I could uh, take this what your class is like. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. I'm like, wow. I mean, everyone who's 17 or whatever age you go to college these days, I mean, what an incredible privilege to be able to study with you these topics for a semester or a year. Now, the concluding question on the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the uh, sacred text of the Bible, to uh, 
another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He says in the book, um, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown-up person. I love that. So in all of your years as a scholar and a teacher and a, a teacher of Bible to so many young people, what are two things you've learned about humankind? That's a really good question. People don't like to give up their ideas, especially when those ideas help them make sense of the world. Now, how have you seen that? You've seen that in your students or in your observations of, of others? Like, what are you thinking about when you've come to that really profound conclusion, which I, I think I had that in the book on the Haggadah too. I think that was a problem with the Pharaoh. There are 10 plagues. He can't give up on his ideas. So after the 10th plague, what does he do? He chases us. It's like, you just slayed all the firstborn. What more do you need to learn that you were wrong? But that's not how people think. We could say that's the same thing as Jacob in the Dina story. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. I think I've seen that just everywhere. You know, uh, you're brought up with a certain perspective that you inherit from your parents and your community and the culture at large. And because it's what you grew up with, it really is the bedrock of what makes you comfortable. And it's very hard to give that up. And I think we're seeing that play out in the political world. I think we see that in marriages when two people get together and it's like, well, this is the way my mother did it. No, this is the way my mother did it. I mean, it's on every level. So that would be the first thing that people really are unwilling to give up their ideas. They're too scared to change their minds. And the second thing is that everyone wants respect. We need to, to change the angle at which we look at things so that everyone gets respect. Very interesting. More than anything else, more than the money, more than it's respect. Yeah. And I think it plays out in all sorts of arenas that when people feel disrespected, they either act out or they shut down. And you could take the misogyny of the world, since we, this is where we started with the position of women, let's go back to it. You can take the misogyny of the world as a very old <laughs> effort to make sure that half the population not only doesn't get respect, but acquiesces to their own lack of respect. It's such an interesting insight with your uh, second observation is that if the th thing in the world that people value most is respect, it's actually something that we can each give to other people, which is a great trade, right? It's like, what does he or she want more than anything else? Respect. Well, I can give her respect at no cost to me. I agree with you 100%. It is so easy for us to give people respect and yet we don't. And then the bigger question is on a systemic level, how do we give people respect? It's one thing for me to say, I'm going to respect you as an individual and you should respect me as an individual. And that is, I think, the basis of everything, really. And then you scale up. So how do societies make sure that everybody is respected? When there are different pulls and pushes on attention and resources and the people on the ground don't know all the ins and outs of what's going on at the top levels. And, but how do we make sure that everyone is respected? Because we really have to. Well, Michal, thank you for such a fascinating conversation on so many levels. Uh, thank you for showing how the Bible is literature and how much there is to so many young people, both in your teaching and your writing. And, uh, and I think this conversation is, is a taste of what people can get by delving into your work more and, and if they're really fortunate into your classes. Well, thank you for having me. This has been delightful. I like nothing more than to have a good little argument about the Bible. Absolutely. It's the eternal source of those things. That it's so true. Thank you so much.
If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.